Hello and welcome to episode seven of Fitter and Faster. My name is Emma Kate Lidberry, your host and managing editor here at Triathlete Magazine. On today's show, we're joined by physical therapist Jay Dashari, who's helped thousands of triathletes overcome injuries, and he is widely considered an expert in the field of biomechanical analysis. Jay gives us some great insights into injury prevention, the most important being how to move well to prevent injury in the first place. He talks us through some exercises we should all be doing, as well as some of the biggest mistakes he sees athletes making. Okay, here's our chat with Jay. Enjoy the show. Jay, hello and welcome to Fitter and Faster. Thank you so much for joining us today. We are excited to speak to you and uh, pick your brains, all that knowledge in there about injury and injury prevention. So uh, why don't you kick us off by telling us a little bit about your background and how you've come to be the expert that you are. Uh, yeah, I've, uh, I think I've been uh, quite lucky in a few situations in life. It's allowed me to morph my career from just a clinician uh, with a passion for treating athletes, but uh, actually to running a research lab. So um, I ended up running a biomechanics research lab at University of Virginia, uh, and then uh, starting another one in Bend, Oregon, which was designed to not just look at uh, basic science. We did a bunch of research um, looking at you know average results for average individuals. But like the novel thing I brought to the field in my career is to look at what I call the N of one, right? So what makes your hamstring problems different than your friend's hamstring problems? And how do you fit into this concept of uh, injury prevention and performance training? And how does footwear impact you? And how does gait training re- impact you? So um, we've done a bunch of research on, um, on quantifying what tools and equipment are needed to do trap proper sports analysis and then try and not just look at things from a lab rat standpoint, just, but to say, how do I translate this stuff into meaningful, actionable things that listeners of this podcast can actually implement and become more robust and, uh, and become po- more powerful. So, uh, it's been a combination of basic science, uh, research and individual performance optimization and, and coaching, honestly, and clinical work, kind of blurring the lines between those, those fields and, uh, and trying to give people information that I'll actually help them out. For sure, yeah. And what do you consider to be, what's in the, in your experience so far, in all the athletes, you, you said earlier that you've uh, worked with thousands of athletes, yeah, literally thousands of different triathletes from pros through to uh, weekend warriors and age groupers. What, what do you see as the most common injury? What are the most yeah. common injuries? Uh, well, I would say, can we back up for a second and, and not get into specific injuries? Because I think the biggest problem with all athletes, but I'll say especially triathletes, is we live in a volume-dependent society, right? We're constantly looking at how far can I go and how fast can I go. Mm-hmm. And that's a great strategy when you're looking to train the pump, right, your heart and lungs. Right. Um, but it's not a great strategy when you're looking to train the chassis, okay? Yeah. And the, the, the thing I always try and get across to athletes is, look, I know your coach says go at 82% today for X number of hours. That's great, okay? And you're moving forward, whether you're swing, biking, or running. I get that. But when you're moving forward for that long of a time under that you know, amount of intensity, you've got to be able to withstand the postural control, the shoulder stability, the hip steering, the foot control, the knee loading, like that, those factors are Mm non-negotiable. And so, you know, the old aspect of, okay, well, what's my workout of the day for my swim, bike and run? 
that doesn't adequately prepare your body to withstand those loads. Uh, and, and I have a whole career and many people have a career trying to, to help triathletes recenter themselves. And, you know, I think it's a problem because some folks say, well, why should I worry about this? Because, you know, it's a swim, bike, run. It's not a swim, bike, run, shoulder, external rotation strength challenge, right? But the reality is if you show up in a deficit in that capacity, that's why you can't maintain your volume swimming. That's why you tend to have shoulder pain. It's why you don't like to swim. It's why, you know, you feel slumped on the bike in your air bar. It's like all these things come to, to a head. And so um, I'm just trying to – when I look at someone's plan, you know, I'm not looking to be your quote coach. I'm looking to help you implement the aspects of, you know, that stability, you know, stability kind of sector into your training to make sure that you can be durable and can, uh, and can be powerful. And so to answer your questions, I mean, yeah, we can talk about specifics, but as an overarching thing, if there's one thing I hope athletes learn from this podcast is what else am I doing to make sure I hit my goals? Because you know, I want to make sure you hit your goals too. Right. And, and that's the reason why I'm here. I'm trying to make sure that you can be consistent and mm-hmm. that you can be powerful in your training. And if you show up in a deficit there, uh, you know, everything else is irrelevant. So uh, we've got to make sure that we're putting the focus on that comprehensive development as an athlete, not just as a swim, bike, and, and run. For sure. And so we know as a, like we know for a fact, right, that the number one uh, factor that affects fitness and performance and tra- you know, making training gains is consistency in training. And yep. the number one thing that prevents consistency in training <laughs> Is injury. Is injury. Right? Yeah. And so what you're saying, if I'm hearing you correctly, is that you've got to build the chassis before you build the engine. And, and, well, I think you can do both. You do the both, right? right. Yeah. 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 Um, and, 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 and the thing is, like, I would say this. I think there's been a shift. It's interesting, right? I mean, if you were, if we had this podcast 10 years ago, I don't think podcasts existed 10 years ago, but if they <laughs> did, um, you know, we would talk about, you know, the importance of core work, right? And then five years ago, we had a talk on, Here's the work you're doing in the off season. And then once the off season's over, then we just swim, bike, and run. And that's been just been changed too, right? I mean, these aren't things that you're just doing in January and February when there's snow outside. These are things you're doing all season long, not six hours a day, right? But but you know, in, in some capacity to make sure that you are consistent, right? Like you talked about, making sure that you show up and you can train every day. And it doesn't require a ton of time, but it does require some focus uh, in figuring out what aspects do you need to focus on to make sure that you can be consistent. Okay, so then what does that look like for the for the average age group triathlete? What does that look like? What does that work look like? Is it is it work that you would want them doing every day or, or two times a week or you know and this is and like you say, this is something that we now advise people doing throughout the season, regardless of exactly. December or January and June or whatever. Yeah, so, so it's it's a great question. This gets into this it's a great question that goes back to you know each one of your personalities, right? So mm-hmm. there are some people who in, in, in life schedule and kids and work and everything else. And so some people say, Hey, look, I'm willing to commit, you know, ten minutes a day. Great. And some people are like, look, that's not how I work. I, I work to, you know, today is the this day, this day, this day, and they want to have it kind of organized more in a structured format, then great. If we spend two minimum, three optimum uh, days per week focusing on this kind of stability work. And again, like I, I usually break things down. If I can get most athletes to dedicate about 20 to 30 minutes to me, two days a week in terms of some stability work, mm-hmm. and one day a week for about 45 minutes in terms of some performance work. And when I talk about performance, I'm talking about learning to be more powerful. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, that's 
not much time, right? And and that's making a profound difference in not just your ability to, you know, again, stay injury free, but also to perform better as well. Um, so again, you know, 20, 30 minutes, two days a week and 45 minutes, one day a week. And, and, and I'm happy. Right? Gotcha. And what, uh, what would be some of those, what, what would you see in, what would you always want to see athletes including in some of those, uh, you know, like the 20, 30 minutes or the 45 minutes, or, or maybe not, maybe not the strength performance work, but in the day to day maintenance, prehab, rehab type work, what are some go-to J, J exercises that you would, are you all, you know, your go-tos for, for almost anybody? For sure. So I think that, you know, when I look at, um, when I look at, Again, if I'm going to take your time away from swim, bike, run, spouse, family, whatever, right? I want to make sure that it has a purpose. So if we're going to say, what should that look like, right? So I separate all that work into two categories, into the, you know, I call it precision type work, right? And performance type work. So performance, we'll, we'll leave it aside for a second. That's more the strength and power type stuff. Precision work goes back to how you maintain your alignment as you're training. Okay, so for example... Most of us spend all of our time, what, slumped over our desk, slumped over our phone, and then we basically put our goggles on and expect to see perfect, nice position in our shoulder blades and a nice overhead reach in the pool. That just doesn't happen, right? So, you know, what types of things do we have to do to improve your shoulder blade position? Uh, endurance, right? Because we don't just do three sets of 10, but I have to have your shoulder blade in a position for all 3,000 or 5,000 yards of your workout, right? Right. Um, you know, as you're running, I want to make sure that you can maintain your knee steering straight, right? I mean, those of you seeing pictures of yourself where your pelvis collapse, your knee point one way, your foot point the other, that's not because your heart's weak, right? That's not because right. your lungs aren't undeveloped. That's because your brain didn't learn the skill. It's not strength, but didn't learn the skill and how to do this. Um, and on the bike, right? Those of you who see yourself hunched over at the back positions, it's because you don't have the skill of how to sit on your bike properly. And how to really, you know, get into a hip hinge versus rounding through your low back. And that's why we see tons of uh, triathletes having low back pain, right? And and so, you know, that's probably a good thing, right? What are we doing from a postural standpoint? What are we doing from a uh, from a tissue balance standpoint? Uh, not just harp on swimming, but it's easy to see this, right? When you look at swimming, all the muscles we use, we pull through, are the majority of them are internal rotator muscles. You're taking our shoulders into an inside rotation, okay? Well, great. If you're doing that for, you know, 10 to 15,000 meters per week, what are you doing to counteract that with external rotation strength? Yes. And, and, and the crowd goes silent, right? And then, so they wonder why they have shoulder problems. And so we have to look at that relative tissue balance and to make sure that we're, again, controlling the scapular position, controlling the external rotation strength um, to work on symmetry, right? Because you want to make sure that your parts are durable, again, not just for one or two laps, but that you look good. And, and when I say look good, like – you're training for anything from a sprint to an Ironman distance race. And like, you have to make sure that you're ready for the entire distance of the event, not just the first half. Right. So, you know, if you're seeing yourself break down in terms of uh, form when you're fatigued, that's not okay. Like everybody yeah. gets tired. What do you do? Well, you prepare for it. Right. And, and I can say right now, you know, it costs more energy to run with poor posture you know, at mile 18 of your Ironman than it does from a better posture. So if I hopefully just got your attention, what are you then doing to make sure your posture doesn't fall apart, right? So those are the type of things that I look at in terms of, you know, how can we maintain posture alignment endurance? How can we maintain steering the part stable? How can we maintain a proper hip hinge and a bike? I mean, all those type of things we work on. And again, 
throughout the season, right? It doesn't. You don't have to have the most complex plan in the world with five thousand exercises, but you find some things that you can do at home or do at the gym or wherever you train, right? That makes sense for you that you can feel. Yeah. Because this is more skill acquisition than just trying to say, "Can you squat three hundred pounds?" I really don't care about that. Right, right, right. So, can you give us an example of of maybe like a shoulder, some good shoulder uh, exercises that people should do to maintain to maintain that sort of posture alignment for the pool and I. Yeah, sure can. So um, we actually have an article in Traffic Magazine that you and I worked on um, for uh, five moves that uh, you guys can work on for some tissue balancing your shoulders, which was, yes. uh, what, two issues ago, I believe? That was the July-August issue, yeah, which July, we yeah. put online fairly recently, shoulder strength and stability. Okay. Yeah, Yeah. so there's some moves there. So I mean, uh, we can even show one visually right now, which is really helpful. So we talked about the difference between internal, right, so going inside, and yeah. external rotation strength. And I know a lot of people do band work, um, and it's great. Great, but even better way to do your band work is to, uh, if you're sitting, which you can do, I hope you can see this, you can sit with your knee bent up and take your elbow and then grab a, you know, it can be a water bottle, it can be a five pound weight, 10 pound weight, whatever you have available. But when you're in this position, I want you to actively push your elbow really firmly into the inside of your knee. Mm-hmm. And what that does, it gets you out of this slump position because again, I'm trying to make sure we work on shoulder blade position and external rotation strength at the same time. So you get in this position, you can do a seated, uh, seated's fine, right? So uh, your knee's bent up, you're pushing the elbow in, and so now you're working from horizontal to vertical, right? Just mm-hmm. working on the external rotation strength this way, okay? Um, and it's interesting, this is an exercise which you know some people may start out with with a light resistance band. They may start out with a two or three or four or five pound weight, but guess what? This is an exercise I actually have folks work up to in terms of some real weight, like, you know, 20, 30 pounds even, eventually, not day one, right? But again, the goal is to build some nice symmetry and stability around the rotator cuff. Mm-hmm. So that's a great example of something that helps on, again, making sure we're avoiding dumping our shoulders and rounding, yep. as well as working on that tissue balance in one simple move, right? So it doesn't take 500 moves, but, you know, a simple move that would, again, get you to think about kind of targeting some some, some some stability, right? So um, that's a great example for the shoulder. Um, in terms of posture alignment, right? So I know people love to, I think our society just defaults to planks. <laughs> um, I never default to planks. Uh, and the reason why is, uh, you know, I, I look at, are we doing things that are functionally making a difference in the way that you perform your sport? And planks are isometric, okay? If you swim, bike, and run, you're never isometric. You're always moving. And one of the big things we see is that you have to control this line of twisting force that goes through our body. Research nerds like me call this the free moment. But just think about this. It's this rotational skewer that we're on all the time, right? Mm -hmm. And so one of the biggest problems that we see driving issues in the spine, hips, pelvis, knees, foot and ankle, everything, right? You name it, is lack of that rotational strength. Mm -hmm. So all of the core work I have my athletes do is all rotational-based. And the reason why, it puts very little stress on the joints and a lot of demand on the skill of core stabilization. So um, this could be... Uh, one of my favorite exercises is um, – I'll show, show two with you. So one of them is to basically um, – those of you probably done um, uh, uh, bird dogs, right? So you're on hands and knees yep. and you basically you, you basically let one leg go straight out back behind you, alternate arm goes back behind you. Modify this for me a tiny bit. I want you to take a foam roller, just a regular foam roller, doesn't matter a brand, put it underneath your shins, right? So when you're in that position, so hands on the floor, mm-hmm. shins are on the foam roll, feet are up in the air. So mm-hmm. just like a few inches off the ground. And now do your bird dog exercise. And what happens is without your whole shin on the ground, when you raise opposite leg, your body wants to what? 
twist and fall inward and you have to learn to resist that twisting load. Um, cool. That's a simple exercise. I have folks go for repetition on that, not for, uh, excuse me, for time, not repetition. So I'll just say, Hey, look, do two minutes, right? So that's not a 30 minutes. It's two minutes. And all it does is get your brain to learn the skill of anti-rotation, right? How do I think about steering my spine and pelvis? Mm-hmm. Um, that's one I love. Um, another one I love is to have, um, you get a, a stability ball, like one of the big stability balls. Yep. Um, can be 45, 65, 55 centimeters. Doesn't make a difference. Um, and so basically you're going to have your hands on the ground. You're in that same kind of quadruped position, right? Your mm-hmm. knees are up on the ball. Okay, so knees are up in the air, hands are down below, and what you're doing is you're going to, if I can imagine hands here, uh, lower bodies back here if you're watching this, and what you're going to do is you're going to twist your lower body to the right, twist your lower body to the left. So your head and your your shoulders and your hands all stay forward, and you're twisting your lower body back and forth. That's teaching you what? How to get nice amounts of counter-rotation between your upper body and lower body. And you're in a, a hip hinge, so it's helpful for your bike position, helpful for your shoulder stability, okay, and helpful for core control, right? So again, one move does a lot of things. So it's taking right? a lot of boxes. Yeah, exactly. And again, so how can I make things more, you know, again, it's skill acquisition, it's not strength, okay? Right. Um, and, uh, and then we talk about like uh, hip and, and foot steering, right? So one example of an exercise I love, it's, it's, it's I call it the tippy bird twist. So basically standing on one leg, um, and when you stay on one leg, it's really important to make sure that when you start with this, that you're not slumping what I call the back seat, right? We're not letting our shoulder blades kind of slump behind our pelvis. Mm-hmm. You want to make sure you can imagine you have an old school heart rate monitor on, mm-hmm. right? It's quite heavy and let that heart rate monitor sink your ribs down in front. And when you do that, if you're somebody who stands on one leg and you feel your weight back on your heels, pretend you have that heart rate monitor on to sink your ribs down in front. That'll bring weight more uniformly from the heel to the ball of the foot, right? So all the way through the whole midfoot. And that's your zero point, okay? So from there, you're going to basically do it. I have my little guy here. <laughs> so we can, uh, we can stand on one leg, right? And so what you're going to do is you're going to go in a tippy bird position, which means the torso, uh, actually this guy doesn't move all the way. Sorry. We'll do this. <laughs> the torso is going to go, uh, horizontal and one of the legs go horizontal one stays vertical, right? And when you're in this position, what you're now going to do, you're going to twist your pelvis inward and then back outward. So we're adding rotation, okay, to this, uh, this this deadlift type motion. So mm-hmm. again, I'm getting a hip hinge firing on. I'm forcing my foot and ankle stability to work, and I'm getting active hip rotation uh, through my spine and pelvis. Right. So again, it's a way to put a compound movement to put a lot of challenge. It's not just balance work, but specific work to make sure my core, my hips, and my feet are all working together. Right. To again, help me steer my part straight. Right. And so, is this work that athletes should do with a coach or you know like a strength and conditioning coach or you know is this something that they can learn from you know somebody like you and do it at home remotely or you know what's the what's the guidance there yeah i would say for sure i mean we just talked about four exercises right and they're great exercises but if you do them wrong they're not going to help so some of you probably heard those goes oh i've seen that before right and so yeah give it a try some of you like I don't get that at all, right? And you see a video. You can YouTube those. They're very popular exercises out there. I've put content out there. I'm sure you guys have some libraries as well. So uh, there's a, if you're like, hey, is this still right? Yes. 
call someone, right? That might be a friend. It might be your coach. It might be, you know, a, a, a clinician you, you trust, but say, Hey, check my form on these because nothing wrong. There's nothing worse than practicing the wrong skill over yeah, and over again. Absolutely. Um, so you, yeah. So it, it's really important to make sure your forms that, uh, checked and dialed in. But once you have that idea about the form, you know, these are exercises that should make you sore. These aren't things that are going to make you, you know, I can't do a hard run workout because I'm sore from my, my, uh, tippy twist yesterday. That's not going to happen, right? Yeah. This is just basically, again, cueing that idea behind, uh, you know, again, learning precision movements. Uh, and, and so, yes, you can 100% do these by yourself uh, once you have the form down. Yeah. So these are exercises that really are designed to help you move well so that you can right. run further and put those, or run, bike, swim further and put those, you know, put those miles through your body without the risk of, you know, acquiring an injury or getting, you know, getting hurt. Yeah, uh, exactly. And I, I called, you know, my recent book is called Running Rewired for a Reason, right? It's, you know, I think people have told, oh, I have to strength train to run. Well, yeah, there's a, there's a reason to get stronger that we talked about that kind of performance type work. But more importantly, people say, oh, well, how are you running? Change your form. You know, when you tell someone to stride out when they run, most people don't even know how to move their hips properly, right? So you tell them to now move their hips different when they're running and they look at you like you just told them to talk in Greek. You don't get it. <laughs> so, you know, if you want to change your form, you first have to know how to move well. Once you learn to move well, which happens through moving repetition, right, then you know how to find a field position sense. And you can tell when you're tired. You can tell how to get back in proper alignment. You can tell how to you know fix your knee collapsing and when you're when you're fatigued so it's all about restoring that awareness within our bodies which is really critical yeah and this is a debate that i've heard a lot is when people you know run coaches or people you, you read a lot you hear a lot about oh you need in order to run better you need to change your run form right but that's the but like you're obviously saying that's that's trying to do step three or four before you've step perfected step one or two. So you need to change how you're, if you're not running efficiently or if you're getting consistently hurt running, for example, you need to change how your body is moving before you try and change how you're running. Correct. Is that what you're a thousand percent? I mean, again, if you look at the research on running gait training, it's all over the place for one simple reason. What do you do? You take a group of people who have never been told to change something before, you bring them in and you say, okay, now do something different, right? You have no idea if that person has, you know, an ankle sprain issue, which limited their ankle from moving properly, which affects their form. If they've got, you know, some shoulder problems that kind of confound things, right? And you say, okay, change the way you run, right? Like, most people, and we've done research like this, right? And so when we tell someone do this, the first thing is, do they actually do that, right? Or do they cheat something else, right? So right. because again, running happens quickly, right? You're like, oh, I have to go. Like, you don't have time to think, plant leg, stabilize foot, bring knee over ankle, right? Steer pelvis over hip. That doesn't happen, right? It happens on autopilot. And the, the reason why, if you're curious, so you know, the way you move isn't cognitive, right? The way we move when we swim, bike, and run happens actually under our cognitive brain center. It's something called our brainstem. And the, the name for this area is called your central pattern generators. And so again, when you walk across your house to go get a cup of water later you don't think lift leg advance stabilize etc it just happens right? right so if you walk a certain way for a long time it becomes your normal mm-hmm. so if you walk a certain way and you have an ankle sprain you start to limp and you keep limping guess what happens you keep limping yeah. okay until some until you make an intervention to fix the limp mm-hmm. right so um just in the same way right so if you said okay go for a run and you bring you right which has baggage of you know overuse injuries and stability problems and hip strength deficits right you say change something your body's like i don't know how to do that right yeah. and then you say oh well gait training didn't work 
no, gait training for you didn't work because nobody found out what you, you need to work on. Again, bring your body back to your best ground zero and then talk about how to modify form. So um, that's why the research out on gait retraining, which I've done plenty of, is all over the place. And it's why I really prefer to do things, again, on that end of one level where you're looking at optimizing an individual rather than optimizing a research finding. For sure, yeah. And so obviously your game, your your preference is always that people don't get hurt in the first place. But, right. but the reality is that they do. And what, you know, what are the, the most common injuries that you see triathletes dealing with yeah i mean i'd say triathletes for sure are going to be uh if you kind of go top to bottom shoulder impingement number one for swimmers and that's the overarching uh again it's, it's interesting i get the research on shoulder instability uh or, or excuse me in swimmers uh that um you know when you look at your your entire stroke right mm -hmm. so your your shoulder is borderline impinged even a healthy shoulder 80 percent of the arc of motion as for every single shoulder revolution that you're doing so imagine like yeah, like it's really like the choice, like the chance of like having tissue being compressed and irritable, 80% of every single arm, arm stroke, right? So um, there's a very slight margin of error there. And those of you who bring that kind of slump rounded shoulder position and the deficit of external rotation strength, you are going to have shoulder instability, shoulder pain at some point in time. Will that happen at 2,000 meters a week or 20,000 meters per week? I don't know, right? I mean, people compensate for different ways, but you definitely will have, um, you know, shoulder impingement. So that's definitely number one up top. Um, low back pain uh, is, is, is rampant uh, on the bike and also on the run, um, again, for postural reasons, right? So most of us tend to sit in the bike like we sit in a bar stool. We sit down and we just slump down our error bars and we're in an error bar position, which is way too aggressive because it looks sexy, okay? And oh, the yes. bike you bought has a you know 60 millimeter head tube and you want to get your bars low even though that you don't have the range of motion to pivot that low through your hamstrings and your pelvis. So what happens is you wind up in a slump position and then you wind up putting up 300 watts at your legs and your spine is just shearing for five hours every day. Like that's not smart. I don't know how to you know people come in i want to look this way in my bike no you want to ride your bike with you know in a powerful position how do we find out what you need to be and then we make your bike fit you you don't fit a bike that doesn't yes. work um i i did a, just a quick tangent here i did a uh uh, this is one of my, like my aha moments, right? So I did a um, bike fit for uh, a gentleman years ago who was, uh, was a cyclist, was a time trial champion, and he was rather new to the sport and uh, came in and wanted a bike fit assessment. He was like one of the top in the state, and um, and you know his goal was to win state championships and et cetera, et cetera. And so we did some things, and he had massive changes in power numbers, and all felt great, and all was well. And uh, he wound up winning state that year and even went to nationals and I think got top 10 at nationals. And he's like, oh, this is great. So I want to, you know, I want to do even better next year. I want to try and win nationals. So uh, this gentleman uh, was a physician. He had finished residency, was now out of school making real money. And he decided he'd go down to a wind tunnel, right? Because that's what you do. You look at drag coefficients. And so the person at the wind tunnel told him, I can't believe you're doing well in that position. You're, you're an aerodynamic nightmare. And he got him into an amazingly aerodynamic position. And this patient called me a few weeks later and said, hey, went and saw this person. They made me super aero. I can't generate power. Like I'm hitting oh, like dude. 50 to 100 watts less every time on every ride. And I get my road bike and I'm fine. But I can't generate power in this position. And I was like, yeah, how do you make your bike go fast? He's like, well, I pedal hard. Exactly. Right. So a lot of us are just in horrible positions that look good in a wind tunnel that you don't have the capacity to get into. Okay. And 
males was speaking mostly to you, women on average, not everybody, but on average tend to be more limber and can get into a little bit more of a hip hinge easier. But most males out there, you're trying to slam your bars too low and too far forward and you're slumping in a position and that's why your low back is getting angry and that's why you can't generate power through your hip muscles. So paying attention to these factors is, is absolutely critical. Yeah, we had uh, Matt Bottrell on the show many, uh, you know, a few episodes back. And uh, yeah, he's obviously a, a bike fit guru who really knows his stuff. But And he was talking about the importance of working. You know, if you're really going to dial in your bike fit, really dial it in with the help of somebody like yourself, you know, who can work in tandem with a bike fitter. And you know, what's the limitations of your body? Uh, not it's, so it's not just about what's going to work well in the wind tunnel. It's what's going to work well in the wind tunnel with your body, and you know, yep. what's, the, what's the limitations of your body. Um, but yeah, I mean that's that's so so key. Um, and is that something that you help people with? You know, is that something that you are interested in doing? You know, like trying to improve bike position so that you can get into a better positions, uh, more aerodynamic positions. You know, getting around that lower back pain. The Talk to us a little bit about that. Yeah, I've done thousands of bike fits. And again, every single bike fits, people will say, I just want a bike fit. I'm like, that's then go see somebody else. If you just want a bike fit, go see somebody else. If you want somebody to look at you and find out, okay, how do I get your body, because everybody's different, into your most optimal position on the bike, that's what I do, right? So if you're going to see anybody, they need to assess your mobility and assess your stability in that position, right? One of the big problems is, you have a bike fit, and what do they do? They stick in a bike for a few minutes, right? And they adjust things in a few more minutes. Do you have the capacity to hold that position for a long enough period of time? I actually developed a test called the J-bar test. With the, my name's Jay, and he's a bar. And it actually tells me objectively how low can I get your bars before you start to cheat your back position, right? I mean, it's uh -huh. like – it's because, again, folks think, oh, I want to get this position because it's optimal. No. Your body dictates your capacity, right? Period. And so um, those are the type of things I look at to say, can you get into your optimal position and can you maintain it, right? If you're a sprint triathlete and you say, hey, I can hold it, be uncomfortable here for, you know, 30 minutes, that's one thing, right? But if you say, hey, I'm doing an Ironman, can you be uncomfortable for five hours? No, that doesn't work, right? You have to be efficient for that period of time. So I know a lot of people, you know, look at the folks in, the, you know, Tour de France and these crazy positions, like, and they try to adopt that as their you know, their alignment in the bike. And again, you can suffer for a half hour. Okay. Mm -hmm. You can't suffer in pain for five hours and expect to still have a good marathon after. Right. So, That's what I was going to say. If you're going to yeah. run, you run well. Yeah. Yeah. So you have to look at those things comprehensively and, and yeah, and vice versa. Right. So when somebody comes in and says, okay, let's talk about running. I ask them questions about the bike, right? Because you're doing that before. How does your bike fatigue, you know, alignment, et cetera, affect the way you're running off the bike? We actually published a study years ago showing that, um, just, uh, you know, when we, for running, sorry to jump all over here for a second, but when we run, we always try to get people to stop kind of dumping their pelvis forward and arching their low back, right? Mm -hmm. Because we, the same postural nightmare problems we discussed kind of creep into your running form. And we uh, were interested in what happens during the transition off a bike, right? So we had folks come in on day one and we just had them run. We said, go run for, uh, we just did two miles, right? And so they go on for two miles, we went to their running form and they came back on day two and we had them ride just 70% of their VO2 max. So not that hard, right? Mm -hmm. uh, for 40K. Uh, and then we had them just do a transition, put shoes on, get back in our instrument treadmill in our lab, go run again. Same, same speed, right? So not hard speed. And we found that every single person at study had more 
pelvic dumping forward, more arch low back, and worse hip extension when they ran. Why? Because you put yourself in that rounded position before you ran already, even that with low intensity was enough to kind of, you know, cheat your running form. So that, you know, the lesson of that isn't, oh, well, what do I do? The lesson is, how do I pay attention to my alignment? How do I make sure I feel my position and my posture? I, I know what to do to go back to. So off the bike, you don't just feel rubbery legs. You think about your mental checklist as far as, yes, get ribs down, open shoulders, drive elbows back behind hips, right? And push the hips back behind you. Like those are cues you're thinking about to make sure that your running form off the bike is as efficient as your normal running form. Yeah. So let um, me let me jump in there and say, what should yeah. this mental checklist look like? You know, what is your mental checklist for run? Yeah. For good run form for for good alignment for those things yeah so it's it's what we just it's great question what we just talked about right so um if you're listening to this i want you to do me a favor i want you to stand up and i want you to just on both legs and stand up and again just kind of went through this earlier but just ask yourself where do you feel pressure is it back on your heels is it over your midfoot or over your forefoot right and so most folks tend to be kind of back on their heels because their back is arched right and so what i want you to do is Think about that heavy heart rate monitor. Let it sink your ribs down in front a little bit till mm-hmm. you feel weight equally split between the ball of the foot and the heel. Okay, That's your ground zero position. Now get on one leg. And while you're on one leg, I want you to take your palms and I want you to shine your palms forward. And what that does, it opens up your shoulder blades and your scapula, right? So it gets you kind of slide them back and down. Yeah. And then bend your arms up in position, right? And then go run and then stop and repeat that like five minutes later and go run another five minutes and stop and repeat that because what do you have to do to check in to find that position so the cues i use for everybody is ribs down in front palms forward to open the shoulder blades and then again push from the hips to drive forward so those simple little cues are great ways to make sure you're in position so if you if you're going to go do a brick workout or if you're going to do a long run do me a favor stop it's going to take you like three seconds. Okay. You're not looking at, you know, to get your heart rate to drop, but just take three seconds. Stop. Do that little check in when you're fatigued, your brain, most people go, Oh, that felt a lot different. Right. So again, the whole idea is to make sure that these skills we're talking about are carrying over into the way you're holding your alignment as you're tired. Right. And if you can learn that skill, guess what happens? You don't have to work harder to run. That just makes sense to me. Yeah. And I'm sure if you're, repeatedly doing that you're starting to retrain the brain as to how things should feel and you're slipping exactly slipping into bad habits you're starting to relearn or or learn good ones yeah yeah and eventually it's a point where you can correct without stopping right but most people again we have to you're running so fast it's like you don't have time to think just stop for three seconds focus on where you are learn that position after a few weeks people like oh i can tell i'm starting to breathe more through my chest right relax your shoulders down i'm starting to let my ribs flare up drop the ribs down like it, it becomes instinctual after time but again these are the things that go outside the you know do this workout this hard for this long right it mm-hmm. goes back to the skill you know mo- most of my, my patients hate me because they come back you know from a workout they say oh it hurt i'm like okay well what changed what do you mean i hurt okay well what happened when you hurt well it just hurt okay when well it hurt at like mile three to four what happened at mile three to four Oh yeah. Okay. I guess I was let my ribs kind of flare up. I guess I was in the back seat. I guess I started overstriding. Right. So, okay. Next time when you go run, do your workout, your coach prescribed you all the things we just talked about. I need you to, you're in charge, right? Like you're responsible for your body. You make sure that you take care of those. They come back. Oh, that didn't bother me next time. Right. So again, if you put your body in a poor position, throw a bunch of volume at it. Good luck. Right. You put your body in a good position, throw a bunch of volume at it. Things go pretty well. Hmm. Like it. Yeah. <laughs> Sounds so simple. Yeah. 
<laughs> well, it is. These are the things we just don't give time for, right? Because yeah. we're so focused on, again, what was your time? How fast do you split? That's all we ask, yes. right? We don't say, what did your quality of your training look like? No one asks that question. Yes. And, and that's the reason why we're having this discussion today. Right. And that's the reason why people obviously lead to getting injured. But um, right. so you talked a little bit about shoulders and hips and lower back lower body uh you know especially runners you know and when people are new to running like that's i found you know i i came into the sport as a swimmer so when i first started running i had the heart and lungs to run for miles and miles and miles but my lower body was not set up for running right yeah and so then you start dealing with plantar fasciitis and itb problems and so what are some of the what are the most common run injuries that you see and how do you how do you solve those yeah, so uh, the top three running injuries we see are going to be uh, anterior knee pain. So just kneecap pain, right? Mm-hmm. It's called patellofemoral pain. Yeah. Uh, patellofemoral pain, and depending on what study you read, it's always two or three or three or two is going to be uh, shin splints and mm-hmm. Achilles problems. So the, no matter what study you read. But so um, I would say for, for – let's tackle each individually. For the knee pain, right? So um, you, you're always looking again at the idea behind can I steer my part straight as I run, right? So we talked earlier about the people. You see your picture of yourself and again, your pelvis is collapsed. Your knee's pointing one way. Your foot's pointing the other. And so you don't know how to maintain rotational alignment between your hip and your foot. Your knee is irrelevant. It's a middle child. All it does is bend back and forth, right? So it's important for sure, but the steering that you learn between your foot control and your hip control is absolutely critical. And again, all that running you're doing forward, cycling you're doing forward, swimming you're doing forward, it does not improve that dynamic control. You put a little bit of time into that, right? again, we call it precision work to improve those skills and you'll retain it. So we always talk about, like we talked about the titty bird twist, right? To help improve some hip control and that, you know, again, also kind of tap into our foot as well to learn the skills of how do I steer and stabilize, right? Yep. That doesn't even move the knee at all. The exercise is nothing with the knee, but it's all about improving the rotational control, mm-hmm. right? So that's one thing we can do. Um, when we talk about the, the shin and the Achilles issues, you know, luckily those are actually the exact same problem. You show up to your sport with poorly prepared foot. Right. So, um, you know, we live in a society where we think, oh, I train my core. Okay. Got it. This guy just said, do some shoulder rotation stuff. I got that. He talked about steering my hip. I got that foot. Oh, I'll just go buy a pair of shoes. Hmm. That does, that doesn't work. Okay. Um, I always tell athletes, you know, footwear makes a micro difference. You make a macro difference. Okay. Um, you have muscles in your foot, right? Just like you have muscles in your core. Right, and their job is to stabilize your foot as you move, just like your core muscles stabilize your spine as you move. Right, um, and if you neglect those muscles inside the feet, we tend to see the arch collapse. We tend to see it move more. We tend to see it move too late. We have timing changes, right, and t- puts tissues in a longer position. And when you put tissues in a longer position, whether it's on the muscles in the inside of the shin, most notably the posterior tibialis that causes shin splints, or the the soleus and the uh, gastroc, which cause excessive strain in the Achilles, right, you're putting those tissues in a longer position, that's more strain. What is more strain equal? More tissue breakdown. It's real simple. Tissues you put in a longer position, more strain rate, more injury prone, period. If you can improve the foundation on which those parts attach, guess what happens? 
you decrease the strain rate, what happens is the tissue is happier. Okay, so, you know, a simple example I always tell folks, if you imagine a bicep curl, right, you put your arm straight and you bend it to about 90 degrees and all the way up. It's easy around this 90 degree mark, okay? It's harder when the tissue is overly lengthened and it's harder when the tissue is overly shortened. That just deals with this kind of the biomechanics of how our joints move. And so if you're constantly moving in a longer position, tissues get more damage with the same amount of volume. So again, if coach has 13 hours in your schedule this week and you're in poor alignment, guess what happens? That 13 hours is putting way more tissue stress than if you had better alignment, right? So it's, I know people default to, oh, too much, too fast, too soon. And yes, you can't be an idiot with your training schedule but the thing we don't hear enough about is what are you doing to fix the quality yes and so just you talking about feet then just reminded me about the mobo board you're the designer of the mobo board right so tell us about that yeah so um this is something so i've I've done a lot of research on, on feet and foot, foot biomechanics over the years. And, you know, most of the research on that stuff is all targeted at, you know, what happens after you get hurt, right? And so my goal has been, again, how do I translate improvement performance too, not just how do I minimize injury? So, you know, the, the state of the world up until a few years ago was, oh, your feet hurt or you have plantar fascia pain? Great. Do some towel curls, right? And mm-hmm. marble pickups. And yep, that was that like, sounds familiar. And, and, and I would encourage you, if you go see a clinician and they give those two exercises, run out the door as fast as you can. Um, and, and here's why. I'm not being rude. If you look at your hand for a second, look at your thumb and look how many joints you have in your thumb. You have two joints in your thumb. Mm-hmm. And look at your fingers. You have three joints in your fingers. It's no secret to any of us. We use our fingers for different tasks than our thumb. Our fingers curl around things. Our thumb locks and opposes, right? Most of the support we have when we grip something comes from our thumb support, not your finger support. Mm-hmm. Take your shoe off. Look at your foot. You have three joints in your little toes and two joints in your big toe. Now, your big toe obviously doesn't come across and oppose like your thumb does, but your little toe's job is to curl. And when you curl, you lift up and you actually lose contact to the ball of the foot. Why would you ever train someone to pick the ball of the foot up off the ground when the demands of your sport requires you have solid contact and stability through your big toe to push off? Because about, depending on the study you read, 70 to 85% of support on our foot comes from our big toe, right? Mm So um, I've done a bunch of things over the years to develop uh, recruitment in, in, in we call intrinsic uh, foot muscle strength, where muscles inside the feet. Uh, and it works great. But I mean, there's one of me and there's millions of other people. So I wanted to scale that. And so I developed Mobo Board as a, a novel training tool, right? So it's a, basically, it's a, a modified rocker board. And the novel thing about it is it's got a cutout for your little toes and not for your big toe. So it forces you or cues you, is a nicer word, but it yep. cues you into getting your big toe to work properly, which helps you develop the muscles inside the arch for a better foundation for everything upstream. So again, your foot's the first thing that hits the ground, right? If your foot control is, is, is shifted, guess what happens? Everything upstream tends to default. Um, you know, we, we see changes in the hip coordination, spine position, shoulder position, right? So you have to make sure all those parts are adapted and stabilized. So I developed Mobo Board as a tool to try and help, uh, again, upregulate people's awareness. It's not, quote, strengthening your foot. If mm-hmm. you want to say that in slang, it's fine. But again, it's building the coordination and awareness and position sense to make sure that you are, again, developing your body comprehensively. So um, it's a yeah, tool I developed to, to try and help folks do that. Yeah, and you do also. You also do some consulting work for different footwear brands too. Yeah, so um, I do both innovation work and validation work for lots of companies. Uh, and so sometimes this is as simple as you know, hey, we've got an idea, we want to see if it vets out. Or sometimes we'll say, here's a problem we want to fix. Do you have any insight in this? And we'll you know 
make some hypotheses and make some prototypes. So um, it, it's just fun to look at, you know, what do we really see play out? I think that, you know, the, when I was, I went to PT school and I graduated in 2001 and uh, you know, my, footwear education in PT school literally came from the footwear companies because back then the only people that had anything remotely similar to a research lab, which was really a theater lab, mm-hmm. and I'm not being rude, but it's reality, right? And it was kind of a song and dance was given to us by the footwear companies. And over the years, we've seen an entire systematic approach of cushion footwear, stability footwear, motion control footwear, and it's all crumbled away like rubble. Um, and now we're actually looking at, you know, how do feet really behave? How does a shoe change how the foot behaves? Because you don't buy fast shoes, right? You buy feet that work, or you actually you make feet that work, <laughs> and you want to find a shoe is the best environment, right, to put your foot in. Mm-hmm. To to, or I should say, you want to find the best environment to put your individual foot in, right? So, um, it, you know, again, we're away from the idea behind stability, cushion, and motion control, and we're now into how do the parts of the, the shoe make a difference? What do they do? You're seeing lots of things play out. You know, some things are trends, obviously, with maximal and minimal, these kind of things. But And now we have you know carbon-plated footwear, which is basically modified trampolines for our feet. Um, so, um, you know, and, and I'm sure it's a whole – I'm happy to talk about That's that. That's a whole want, but, other podcast. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but, I mean, yeah, there, there's – and we've done research on those too. And, again, there's a lot of things behind that as far as – you know, shoes do make a difference, right? They're a micro-change. And, and I always tell folks – you know, look, uh, everybody's talking about the 4%, right? So we talked about that in the past year. So again, you can basically put yourself in a poor running position and have an 8% decrease in running economy just from slumping in the back seat. So rather than going to drop 300 bucks on a pair of shoes, if you can even get them, right? Yes. Why not spend some time focusing on you for a change? So um, you know, again, equipment matters, of course, but Put the best you in everything you can, and I hope we kind of made the argument today to try and look, pay attention to some of these things, give them some attention. Yeah, no, I think we definitely have, Jay. And one thing that you said just a moment ago was talking about things upstream, like things upstream in your body. So, like we're talking about feet, um, but something that I've learned the hard way, right, is that oftentimes athletes might feel a pain, say, I don't know, in their hip, right, left left hip pain or left hamstring pain. Um, and they'll stretch that, they'll roll it, they'll, they'll get every device that they can possibly think of to try and get rid of the pain, right? Nobody likes pain, especially if you're trying to get through a good training week. But I've learned so, so, so often that it's not, the, the symptom isn't the cause, right? And right. how, can you give us a little bit of a, a guide, if you like, onto how you determine what the cause of the injury is? Or even maybe just awareness that there is, there can often be, and uh, yeah, a different origin to where the, the, the pain is presenting. Yeah. So, I mean, that, that gets into the uh, musculoskeletal analysis, right? So, I mean, you do a, a clinical exam in someone, you see, okay, hey, you know, where do things fall into, into realm here? So, you, you put a, a great one out, right? So, you say, I have pain in my hip. Well, okay, that can be low back pain. It can be hip joint pain. It can be muscle tendon pain. It can be nerve pain. Like, okay, which is it, right? Like, because you don't treat those the same. You treat them completely differently. So, you have to actually go through some analysis to figure out which thing is the problem. Um, I mean, a few times you do some things yourself. Like, I mean, for example, pay attention, right? If you have hip pain, every time I twist my spine to the right, my left hip hurts, that's not a hip problem. That's a back problem, right? You feel your pain in your hip, that's a back problem. Or, um, 
you know, I, I can't reproduce my pain all on my spine, but when I extend my leg out every time I go get in the car, right, just to get in, right, that's like causes kind of shooting nerve pain down the leg. That's likely a nerve mobility problem, right? So that's something, and again, strengthening is not going to fix that. We have to look at nerve glide and, and joint mobility in the spine to make sure we have decompression there. So you have to, that requires a nuanced approach, but I would say that again, if, and I know people live in the world right now of self-fixes, and I believe me, I'm 100% for that. But when you have those things you can't solve yourself, I mean, there are people out there who do this. So if you need help, ask your friends, ask your coach, ask your local running retailer and bike shop who they recommend in your area to go find somebody. Because um, sometimes it does take a pair of knowledgeable hands to, to do some things to find out what you need to do. Um, I've put out lots of information in, in my two books um, with lots of self-tests in there. So, I mean, those were kind of low-hanging fruit. Books are cheap um, and you can do it for your own home. So, and I've got different tests outlined from different things, all the way from foot pain to shoulder impingement that you can look at uh, to, to try and, you know, find some solutions yourself. But if you're confused, definitely ask for help. I mean, sure. uh, the, the worst thing in the world is to sit there and, you know, I always laugh. People spend three hours on one night looking at, you know, WebMD. Like, you could have spent an hour and found out what the problem is and fixed it, right? So. Yeah, no, so your book's Running Rewired that's a velo press book and yep. the anatomy for runners correct correct yes and uh i remember seeing it must have been a couple of years ago now but in the in the gym in boulder i remember seeing flora duffy when she was in the height of height of race season crushing it and she was walking around the gym in boulder just uh, with your running rewired book yeah. just doing all the different <laughs> exercises as she walked around the gym and i was like well there's a good advert for jay's book yep. <laughs> <laughs> Laura's an amazing person. She's awesome. Yeah, for sure. So Jay, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, definitely some great nuggets of info in there and hopefully uh, some information there that will help keep people injury free. But awesome. um, yeah. yeah, no, thank you. We really appreciate your input and expertise and uh, wish you well for the rest of the year. Great. Thanks so much. Cheers. Thank you, Jay, for joining us and thank you for listening. If you haven't already, please subscribe to our podcast, rate and review it. It helps us out and it helps others like you to find it. We'll be back in four weeks with episode eight. But until then, happy training.